fit, but that was actually Israel, and the capital being Samaria. <clears throat> the southern portion was called Judah, and the capital was Jerusalem. The ruler at this time of Israel to the north was a man named Pekah, and he came after assassinating his predecessor, Pekahiah. It's one way to get to the top. The ruler of Judah, the kingdom to the south, was a man named Ahaz. <clears throat> Both kings were wicked. One in particular, Ahaz, is mentioned in Second Kings and Second Chronicles because of his extreme wickedness. He was just a really, really bad guy. Second Kings 16, verses 1 through 4, talks a little bit about him. <clears throat> in the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, David wasn't really his father. It was more of an ancestor is what they meant by that, not his literal father. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. <clears throat> he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nation the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incenses at the high places and on hilltops and under every standing tree. He was a bad guy. <clears throat> at the time that Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, the ancient Middle East was in a, a power struggle. Imagine that. The Middle East in a power struggle, just as it is today. The balance of power was kind of seesawing back and forth between several nations. It was kind of one of those, you're in charge for a while, and then you're in charge for a while, and then you get to be in charge for a while. And it was dependent on pretty much who had the largest army or the most resources. One of the, the biggest threats at that time was the nation of Assyria. <clears throat> and because Assyria was so large, the king of Israel named Pekah, and a man named Razin, the king of Syria, which was also called Aram, wanted to team up their nations with Judah to fight the larger threat of Assyria. So you have three nations. You have Israel, Syria, and Judah, that these two guys want to team up with Judah to fight the Assyrians because it was kind of one of these deals. We all hate each other, but we hate Assyria even more. And since... None of us on our own can beat Assyria. We'll put down our hatred for each other for just a little while so we can go fight Assyria together. Kind of sounds like a, a plot line from wrestling. So here's all the players in this story today. You have Israel, or also known as Ephraim. His, the king's name was Pekah. You have Judah, also known as Judah. The king's name was Ahaz. You have Syria, also known as Aram, whose king was Razin. So these two guys, Pekah and Razin, plan to go down and talk to Ahaz and get him to join with them to go fight the Assyrians. And after all of their planning and scheming and conniving, they present it to Ahaz and he goes, hmm, no, I don't think so. So Ahaz says no. Pekah and Razin began to work together to remove Ahaz as Judah's king. And that didn't work. So they decided they would go to war against Ahaz now. I guess it's 
the opposite of what we normally hear. It's one of those, if you can't join them, beat them. So since he won't join us, we'll just go take his kingdom over. And the plan was that they would put somebody else in power, and then they would have all the resources of Judah also. Here's how Isaiah wrote about it. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the king of Uzziah, king of Judah, king of King Razine and of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, which is in the capital of Judah, but they could not overpower it. <clears throat> now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim, remember, that's another name for Israel. Aram is another name for Syria. So Syria has aligned its, allied itself with, with Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz, king of Judah, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct at the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Razine and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, or Syria, and Israel, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. There's a lot of stuff in there. That's why we did the little history review, so it kind of made sense. When Ahaz and the people of Judah heard that Syria and Israel had formed an alliance and were coming after them, they were scared. In fact, verse 2 <clears throat> says that they were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And if you think back to just a week or so ago of the recent hurricane that went through Texas, and you saw the pictures of trees that were blown by the wind, many of them were the wind just blew them so long that they just fell over. So these people were scared. They were terrified at what was coming. And there was a sense of of intense dread of these upcoming battles. And then the Lord spoke to Isaiah and told him to take his son and go meet with Ahaz. It's kind of interesting that his, Isaiah's son, his name was Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. Now, there's a lot of prophecy in, in Isaiah, and, and you have to kind of put it all together to, for it to make sense. You say, well, what's the big deal about his name meaning a remnant will return? In other words, what was going to happen, although God would bring calamity on the people of Judah in the form of captivity by an enemy, not Syria and Israel, even though they would be taken captive, there would be a remnant that one day would come back and return to the land. And so Isaiah's son is actually named, a remnant will return. So there's significance in the actual name. And history shows us that that is exactly what happened. Isaiah 7 and 3 says that Isaiah met with Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct that fed water into Jerusalem's upper pool. The spot that we're talking about here, if you read through that scripture, you kind of go, what are they talking about? It was on a road that led to a field where people washed their clothes. 
That was what was called the washerman's field. In the, the um, King James Version, it's called the fuller's field. Not that that has anything to do with the Fuller Brush Company, for some of y'all that have been around for a while. Ahaz was probably there. Now keep in mind, he knew that Syria and Israel was coming to fight him. And so he's out at the city's water source probably to inspect it to make sure that, that everything's okay and they were going to have water. If their enemy surrounded them, they were going to still have water in the city. And Isaiah told him, don't be afraid. He compared the kings of Israel or Syria and Israel, Razin and Pekah, to smoldering stubs of firewood. Now, in our every, everyday thinking, that doesn't really mean a lot, probably as much to us as it did to them back then. What he was saying is there was a lot of smoke, but there wasn't much fire. In other words, the kings and the armies that were coming against them, they didn't really pose a whole lot of threat. It was mostly just smoke. Isaiah told Ahaz that the plot to overthrow him and install the son of Tabeel as a puppet king would fail. Now there's some question as to who this son of Tabeel is. It could have been an actual person whose father's name was Tabeel. That would be logical. It also could be the name of a hereditary state of office. For example, in the Old Testament, there were, there were several different people that were referred to as Pharaoh. That wasn't their name. It was more their title. In the, in the New Testament, there was also several people that were referred to as Herod, and that wasn't necessarily their name. It was more their title. So Tabeel could have been a, a government title. And it signified the office more than the person. But here's something interesting. Another possibility is this. And this is, this is really kind of cool. When you think that the Bible all means something, the Hebrew spelling of Tabeel may represent a slight change in the way it was originally written. The original form meant God is great. Now listen to this. The altered form meant good for nothing. And it could possibly be, kind of as Isaiah was writing, that it was kind of a sarcastic way of referring to a puppet king, a guy who had no power, that was just controlled by some other country. And so it very well could have been just pure sarcasm on Isaiah's part to call him good for nothing. Either way, Isaiah announced that all the plans of the neighbors were going to fail. They were going to come to nothing. And the next couple verses after this, are not included in our lesson text today, but I, I think they're very important to, to the meaning of the series of events that took place. I want to read Isaiah 7, verses 7 and nine, seven through 9. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Razim. Now, what he's saying is the head of Syria or the capital of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Razim. Within 65 years, Ephraim, or Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, or the capital of Israel is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. 
If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. First, Isaiah tells Ahaz, it will not take place. It will not happen. Why? Because each of these countries, here's the countries, here's the capital, and here are their kings. And they're only men. That's all they are. They're just men. But the key to all of it is at the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And I believe that applies to every one of us today. We are facing an awful lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty about our maybe our financial security. Uncertainty about unrest in the world. And a lot of people are scared. Just like the people of Judah were at that time. They are like trees in the wind. They're just blown and, and they don't know what to do and they're, they're in this constant fear of what's going to happen. But I can tell you this that there are some people that are so scared that they're looking for answers, but they're looking for the answers in the wrong places. I can tell you today that security and the answers are not in a presidential candidate. Regardless of how many changes or how many promises of change they might make. Now, I'm not saying don't vote. I believe everybody should vote. I believe everybody that is our... That is a, a, one of the reasons this country is so great is because we have the opportunity to go out and vote. But what I'm saying is, whoever gets into office is not going to fix everything. Because they're just men. It's just like Isaiah said. You have Pekah and you have the other guy, and they're just men. Here's the country, here's the capital, here's the king. Big deal. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> they're just like those leaders. They're just men. Now, I'm not saying that one's not better than the other, but we're not going to get into that this morning. But I will tell you this. If you put your faith in men, you are certain to be disappointed. Whether it's a candidate for the President of the United States or whether it's a minister or a spiritual leader, don't take me wrong, our faith cannot be in the man. It must be in God. There are too many people today that are following after men and not following after God. They're following after a personality, but they're not following after the God that the person's supposed to be serving. But the good news is that if we do put our faith in God, if we stand strong in our faith, we might go through some hard times, but we will stand. And as Isaiah said, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And that goes for us today. If we don't stand firm in our faith, we will not stand at all. When we look at things through human eyes, these things often look insurmountable. But not when we look at them through faith in God. According to the National Bureau of Standards, a dense fog... 100 feet deep, covering seven city blocks, is composed of less liquid than it would take to fill an ordinary drinking glass. Let me say that again. A dense fog, 100 feet deep, covering seven city blocks, is composed of less liquid 
than it would take to fill an ordinary glass of water. Apply this to the obstacles in your life. If they were seen in their true size beside God's power and plan for us, they would be reduced to nothing. But yet we look at that fog and we can't see and we get scared and we say, oh my goodness, everything has just gone black and everything, I can't see what's going on and I can't see where I'm going and I'm, I'm all beside myself because I don't know what's going on. When all of that fog really comes down to just this much. And when we take our problems and we compare them to God's power and His plan for our life, they are reduced to the same way. They're nothing. They just seem big in our eyes. As God told Ahaz, the king's powerful powerful armies were mere smoldering stumps. They were mere smoldering embers. Lots of smoke, lots of fire, no fire. When they were compared to Ahaz's God. And today there might be things that, that seem so big that you feel they're just looming over you and they're weighting you down and they're just keeping you from going forward. And the obstacles that pop up and they're standing in your way and you can't see through the fog of things that have come against you. But all of these things, when they're compared to God's awesomeness and His plan for you, are no more than smoldering stumps in a glass of water. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the baby knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Remember, the king of Assyria was the most powerful guy around. So God tells Ahaz, now remember how evil Ahaz is. He sacrificed his own son to false gods. So he tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, oh no, I'm I'm not going to test God. All of a sudden Ahaz got really spiritual. Now keep in mind, this is the same Ahaz that worshipped false gods sacrificed his son to false gods, went to the extreme limits of turning away from God, and he doesn't want to test God. In reality, Ahaz's plan was to ally himself with the king of Assyria instead of trusting in God. In other words, he tried to do it on his own. 
Isaiah gets a little irritated. And he says to Ahaz, isn't it enough that you're trying my patience? You're going to try to try God's patience too? So Isaiah prophesies of a sign. A sign that would come in order to prove that what God said was true. He tells him that the sign would be that a virgin would give birth and call the child Emmanuel. And this prophecy and this sign have a double fulfillment. They have a double meaning. And stay with me and don't throw anything at me until we get all the way through this because I'm not teaching heresy here. I promise you. First, there's two meanings here in this prophecy. A young unwed woman from the house of Ahaz would marry and give birth to a son. And before three years passed, presumably the three years is mostly the first year was the pregnancy and then two years before the child could speak, before these three years passed, those other two kings that were going to come in and try to invade Jerusalem, they would be destroyed. Don't worry about those guys. Later in Matthew... He quotes Isaiah 7 to show a further fulfillment of the prophecy. This is the second half of the prophecy. A virgin named Mary miraculously conceived and bore a son whose name meant to both Ahaz and Matthew, God is with us. And this is why it can have a double meaning. Many Bible scholars find that the word used in Isaiah as virgin, it's flexible enough to be to be used in a couple different ways. One way, to speak of a young woman who at the time of Isaiah's speaking was a virgin who was soon to be married and have a son, and he would be the sign for Ahaz. So that's one of the meanings. The other meaning was that later in Matthew, we see this unique fulfillment in history where of a virgin birth of the Son of God. So there was a double meaning. There was a, a fulfillment of prophecy for Ahaz, and then we use that scripture, Matthew used that scripture, to speak of the coming of Jesus Christ. Both spelled something that was coming to deliver the people. The reference of eating curds and honey, which I had read this before, heard it all my life, and I never really understood it. It's like one of those things that you hear and you just accept it, but you don't really know what it means. I'm sure it was just me. But the reference to eating curds and honey is generally understood as a forewarning to the calamity that was coming to Judea from Assyria. Remember, God promised that Israel and Syria would not destroy Judah. But he told them the Assyrians were coming, and they would. And so probably what, what Isaiah has in mind at this point is he's thinking of curds and honey as the diet of a nomadic people people that were nomads, like Abraham was. that They didn't have a permanent home. They'd, they'd travel and they'd settle here for a while. They'd settle here for a while. And they were, he was thinking of that diet as opposed to those that lived in the city or people that were stationary. It indicated a scenario of a time when the farmland would be devastated. That was part of the prophecy. Because if you're a nomad, you don't have time to plant crops and wait for them to grow and then pick the fruit from the crops. So you have a different kind of diet. So what would happen is, he's saying this would be a child that would eat curds and honey. Honey was found in natural places. 
Kurds were from the goats or the whatever they, else they had that they carried the cattle. So he was kind of foretelling what was coming in the future, that all your farmland is going to be wiped out, your infrastructure of your city is going to be wiped out, and you're going to be scattered across the country. And indeed in the future, the Assyrians did ravage Judah's countryside, and many of the agricultural products that were available at the time that Isaiah was speaking were not available. And this was a word from God that the going was going to get rough. God was telling them, it's coming. Syria and Israel are not going to destroy you. I won't let that happen. But there's some hard times coming. But he didn't just leave it at that. He said that he would deliver Judah from Syria and Israel, and eventually he would deliver them from Assyria. In this passage we just read, it says that when, when Israel split away and they split into two separate nations, it was a time of distress and turmoil for the people of Judah. In this scripture it says, The Lord will bring on you and your family and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Israel broke away from Judah. They went through some tough times then. But he's telling them now, that was nothing compared to what's fixing to happen. That is nothing compared to when the Assyrians come. And though Syria and Israel did not defeat Judah, later the Assyrians would distress and humble Judah even more than they ever had been. They would invade the nation, they would conquer its cities, and they would devastate the farmland. But through all of that, God still had a plan that would preserve a remnant of His people that would someday return and rebuild the kingdom. And God not only had a plan for Judah, He has a plan for your life today. Throughout the Bible, we, we see those that found themselves in situations they really probably didn't anticipate that they would ever find themselves in. Joseph was a young man. He was a son of Jacob, one of 12 sons. Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham. So you would think, well, that's not too bad. You're the, you're the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of the entire nation of Israel. I'm his great-grandson, Joseph. Things should be pretty good for me. But in a series of events that takes place, Joseph finds himself being sold into slavery by his own brothers. This can't be happening. I'm the great-grandson of Abraham. I can't be sold into slavery. And at first that was kind of bad. But then it kind of seems to work out because Joseph moves up in the, in the regime of Pharaoh and he's kind of a favored person. Pharaoh likes him. Kind of buds. 
And it's going good until Pharaoh's wife accuses Joseph of something he didn't do. And Pharaoh sides with his wife and throws Joseph in prison. This can't be happening. I'm the great-grandson of Abraham. It was bad enough when I was a slave. Now I'm in prison. This can't be happening to me. So Joseph finds himself in prison for something he didn't even do. But look what happens. A famine hits the land where his father and brothers live, the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan. And there is no food in Canaan, but there is food in Egypt. Why? While Joseph was in prison, Pharaoh had a dream, and nobody else could interpret it, but Joseph interpreted the dream. And here's what the interpretation was. There would be seven years of increase, and during that time, you're to take a portion of the increase, store it away, because after that seven years of increase, there's going to be seven years of famine. And guess what? The famine came. And Joseph's family has no food. But they're saved because they ultimately end up in Egypt where there was plenty. Why? Because Joseph was there. They didn't know it. They thought he was dead. Joseph had become the second most powerful person in Egypt. He only answered to the Pharaoh. And he had set the kingdom up over these seven years of plenty to where now that there was a famine, they still had plenty of food. And through this series of events, his brothers come up and they get food. They don't even recognize him because they think Joseph's dead, but he recognizes them. And eventually they have this big family reunion and they move all the mama and them up back up there. All the kids and grandkids, and they move them to Egypt. So was Joseph's life problem-free? No. He was sold as a slave. He was put in prison. Was God there? Absolutely. Did God have a plan? Yes, He did. Without the plan, without Joseph going into slavery, without Joseph being thrown in prison, there would have never been all of the rest of the events and the family would not have had food during the famine. Will your life always be problem-free? Absolutely not. Will God always be there? Yes. Does God have a plan for your life? Absolutely. Look what Joseph said about the things that happened to him. He was speaking to his brothers after everything had settled and all the people were moved up to Egypt and everything's good. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended, harm, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He looked at the very brothers that sold him into slavery that put this sequence of events into play. And he looked at them and said, when you sold me into slavery, you did it for bad reasons. But God had a plan. And it worked out for the good because it saved your life. 
That doesn't mean I like it. But it means that it was God's plan. I am sure that along this series of events in Joseph's life, life, he didn't always understand during that time as well as once it was accomplished. But at some point, he did understand. When he was sitting in prison, I'm sure he didn't sit there and say, oh, it's all going to work out. I'm sure there was times when he was like, why am I here? Abraham's my great-grandfather, and I'm sitting in prison. My father thinks I'm dead. My brothers hate me. This can't be. Why me? Sometimes things look different depending on where you're looking at them from. Problems usually look different when looking at them as opposed to looking back at them. When we're standing on this side of the problem and we're, all we see is problem, we see fog, and it, it looks like it's insurmountable and, and we can't fix it, we can't do anything about it, it looks completely different than we're on the, this side of it looking back and we go, ah, aha, I get it. It's in perspective. Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because God's understanding is not like ours. When we face problems, we don't always understand why. When things come up against us, we don't always understand why. But we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we don't lean on our understanding. We lean on the promises of God. And we can lean on the understanding of God because our abilities are not God's abilities. The Bible says in Philippians 4 and 13 that we can do everything. We can do everything. But how? Through Him that gives us strength. I can do anything. Not just me, but through Christ that gives me strength. When I face a problem and I don't see an answer, and when things look like they're, they're just absolutely caving in all around us, I can survive. Not through my own power. Not by my own understanding. But through God that gives me strength. The Bible says... Remember what Isaiah said in, in chapter 7 and 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. We have to stand firm in our faith. That's why it's important to study the Word of God so that we know what the foundation is. If we know the Word of God 
and we have the Spirit of God in our life, we can stand firm in our faith. Because in times that many people are facing in the world today, there is nothing else that will stand if we don't stand firm in our faith. There's an old hymn that says, On Christ the solid rock I'll stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Look at Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul was a great man of God after his conversion. He was a really bad guy before. But once Paul was converted, he was a great man of God. He started a lot of churches. He wrote so many incredible things in the Bible. Most of the epistles in the Bible were written by Paul. But Paul went through some pretty bad things while he was doing all of these good things. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, being, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You know what's really weird about that? The whole reason for 40 lashes minus one is they felt like that 40 was too many. But 39's okay. Going on. Five times, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from in Gentile, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This great man, Paul, that we look at and think he was this extraordinary Christian. He must have just never had a bad day. He just walked on the clouds and everything was great. No. He went through more than I would ever want to go through. Beaten, shipwrecked, hungry. His own people hated him. The other side hated him. You go to the city, you're in danger. You go to the country, you're in danger. It was horrible. And in spite of that, in the same book... In the next chapter, in verse 10, look what Paul wrote. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. God's plan may not always follow the path in the direction that we think it should go. 
But if it's God's way, He sees the end results from the beginning. And often we're lucky and we think we're pretty smart if we see the end results at the end. Here's the problem in a nutshell. In the case of that old hymn, we want the solid rock without the sinking sand. In the situation of Joseph, we want the plenty in time of famine, but we don't want the slavery in the prison that went before it. In the case of Job, who we really didn't talk about, you know that story, we want the blessings that Job received in the latter part of his life, but we don't want the part where he lost everything. In the case of Paul, just give me all the accolades about the writing and starting all the churches and stuff, but without the beatings, without the shipwrecks, without the floggings, without the prison and all the other things that he experienced. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Only follow me as I follow Christ. And sometimes we think that God's plan just isn't going to work in our situation. Even though He's never failed us before, even though He's always worked His plan out in our life, when we get into this one situation, it just seems like maybe He won't do it this time. God, I know You've always done it before. But I don't know if you can do it this time. He hasn't changed. The Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, next week, next month, next year, forever. And if he brought you through the last time he will bring you through this time he doesn't promise that there will be no problems he promises that he will always be there in the middle of all those problems and during those times we often often our instincts strongly suggest that we abandon our confidence in god and try to figure it out on our own One of Ahaz's problems was <clears throat> that he looked at Assyria and saw that they were conquering all these other nations. And he thought, maybe if I go serve their gods, that I'll be better off. It's not the way it works. And maybe a, an obstacle has popped up in your path and, and you've wanted to turn and go the other direction. Or maybe the path that God has you on seems to be leading down this long, lonely wilderness of pain and suffering. And maybe at some point you've even doubted that this could even be part of God's plan. 
Let me tell you this today. For those that have chosen and dared to trust God, He has proven that His plan always prevails. And His plan always accomplishes His good purpose in our life every time. God bless you.